Yo, bravo, how you doing? Very well, um, very well. Although I'm embracing myself for the cold which is about to come. I, I don't really do well in cold weather. Is it gonna get worse? It is, it's, it's meant to start snowing from today and then next week is meant to hit minus. So zero degrees and wow. minus one on a couple of occasions. Um, it was a good week this week, weather-wise. Um, yeah. It, it, this is not going to be a Perfect. poor episode, people, where we're, even though we're speaking about the weather. That's usually when <laughs> you've got nothing else to discuss. But, it's like, yep, yeah, switch to the next podcast. <laughs> These guys have lost it. They're done. <laughs> so um, it's the weather podcast. It's the weather podcast. But yeah, I, I'm uh, good. And I'm, I'm, I'm very good because I'm using these episodes within my day-to-day conversations and using them to help me remember how to be better and to ensure that every conversation is left with that person feeling better about themselves. To add some Mm. context into that, I've moved into a new environment where some people are actually anxious to speak to me. Um, To buttress that point, there was a lady I spoke to on Wednesday and admitted after the end of the conversation that she was extremely anxious to speak to me. Um, And I, I, I get it. It's not necessarily because I'm an imposing figure, but when someone is coming new into an organization where that organization is already underachieving and that person has gone through a rigorous process in terms of coming in, there will be people who will be anxious in having initial meetings with that person, especially when these meetings are online. So utilizing the power of communication and some of the strategies that we've spoken about has really helped to put these people at ease that I am on your side but we are going to move forward together. Yeah, and it's 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 the idea that you're a judge and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're judgmental, but your presence is a judge because ultimately what your existence means is, number one, there is a way of doing what we are doing better. Mm. Uh, and number two, this individual has the answers. Um, so your presence alone is a judgment on their performance so far, yes. whether you are a judgmental person or not. And that can be quite hard for people to swallow. Extremely difficult. Even if and when they know that some of the solutions are right, if you, we are not tactful in how we handle people, as Carnegie labelled it, what is right won't happen. And this just unearths the complexity of human beings. We can know what is right mm. and still not do it. How's your week been? <laughs> My week has been good. I mean, I came to a, I wouldn't call it epiphany, but a realization. So I had a phone call um, or a Zoom call with a very close friend of mine or two very good friends of mine. And it was a really good discussion and you know, when people ask certain questions, it makes you reflect. And one of the questions that had been asked to me, it's been asked to me in previous ways, but the way it was asked to me yesterday really made me reflect on kind of where I am in life. And um, the question was a very simple question around how how I have perceived or how I have experienced this kind of COVID season. Um, and what it did is made me reflect on this time last year, Um, And just to put things into perspective for people, this time last year, I was waking up at about five o'clock to travel about two hours to work um, Mm. in Reading. Before work, I would go to the gym and then start my day. I would eat lunch and dinner in the office and then travel back home, uh, get home around eight or nine o'clock, cook lunch and dinner for the next day, and then start to do my studying or revision for my MBA assessments. And that was pretty much a Monday to Friday activity. Um, And I miss it. And for many people that might be like, what? What do you mean? I miss it. I miss the routine. I miss the structure. I miss the different locations throughout the day. And I I miss the multiple opportunities for wins. And I think for many people in this period, including myself, there can be almost a subconscious idea that, okay, I can just wait until life restarts again. But this is actually life. (laughs) What we're living right now is life. So we have to understand how we thrive during this period. And if Mm -hmm. we don't, then, you know, the, the time is just ticking by. 
so so that was a really strong epiphany that I had um, yesterday, actually, and it really made me put certain things into perspective. So for that, I'm really grateful. That, that's such a poignant point, and I don't want to dwell on it so long because of what we're about to enter. But it, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a young lady where I was trying to get her not to wait. And I think you just said it so succinctly that life is still happening, it's moving on, and we cannot wait and expect things to just suddenly settle and for us to continue where we were. Mm. Yeah, this if, if, if this carries on for an extra year, do we really want to have said that 2021 was a rubbish year or a dead year because we didn't do anything? There are still opportunities for us to thrive and win and we just need to identify them and make the most of them. Um, as you said, this isn't something that we can or we should be reflecting on in too much detail today because we've got a fantastic discussion ahead. And I kind of want to buttress it around what you've just said in terms of your experience working um, in a new environment and people being anxious to talk to you because ultimately, you know, they, there is a fear that your actions or your words are an indictment on them and their performance yes your objective your goal is to create a new way of working um that is better for the, the staff and better for the, the students but in order for you to to make that objective a reality you need to bring people on on a journey you need to win people over to your way of thinking yes and that's exactly what this episode is going to be about. We're going to be talking about the tools, tactics, skills, insights that can help us as individuals win people over to our way of thinking. Now, I think whenever we talk about Dale Carnegie and his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, we have to... I think we have to reinforce the idea that this is not a book on manipulation. No. It's not a book on how to trick people. Everything we're talking about doing is about doing it righteously. And if you're doing it appropriately, the result is you become a better person, not be not you become a better manipulator. Um, so I, I think we, we've touched upon that point at each episode that we've done on this topic, but I really want to reinforce that because I think, especially in, on this topic, there are some things which people may see as manipulation. Um, and if if you wanted to, to use this superpower for evil, you definitely could. Yes. So uh, I, I, I definitely want to encourage people to think about these skills and think about how they could be used for good rather than for for, for manipu manipulation purposes. But without further delay, let's get into it. So we're talking about winning people over to our way of thinking and establishing trust, establishing a, a mindset in the people that we're working with so that you can go on and execute and execute on the same page. Because sometimes people think, okay, well, yeah, let's let's both do our jobs. Let's both deliver. But if you're not singing from the same hymn sheet, if you're not thinking um, in in a strategically aligned way, you can find after a week, even a day in some instances, that you're both actually working in cross purposes. Mm. You're both you're you're both working in a different direction, which means that even though you're both maybe really productive. You're not actually working towards the same end goal. So a lot of the things that we're talking about is about making sure that you're both inside the same track, working together with your team, delivering towards that same outward objective. And people might remember from our previous episode where we talked about storming um, and talked about the conflict that is absolutely necessary when building a new team and getting everyone targeting uh, a joint objective. And one of the things that we kept talking about in the episode was you need good facilitation skills. You need to be able to handle conflict. You need to be able to 
to get people to see your way of thinking without forcing them to 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 follow your 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 worldview this episode talks about exactly that so if you are thinking okay well that episode on storming was good but they didn't really give us any useful facilitation techniques that's exactly what that episode this episode is talking about and i gave that kind of long-winded introduction so that people can hopefully put some of this into context yes. when we talk about the first, second, and third points that, that we'll delve into. The first of which is very simple. To the best of your ability, avoid arguments. Mm-hmm. Avoiding arguments. Now, Afalabi, what does that mean to you? <laughs> it means acknowledging what you're thinking and not saying it. Because there'll be many instances where your immediate response internally to something that you have seen or heard is no that's wrong but the moment in which you say that out aloud you are not necessarily challenging the matter at hand from the other person's perspective you're challenging them now from your perspective you're just disagreeing with this topic this concept this idea this innovation this initiative but that other person inherently takes this as a personal attack which is not your aim so so what can you do as a result listen further listen further to try to put together more pieces to understand where that person is coming from because if you launch early and simply say that's wrong and have that argument you might find that you're arguing over different things and I've been there in the past where what I have been disagreeing with was not the complete picture that the other person presented, which buttresses Abby's point last week that overall, we as human beings are terrible communicators. We, we, we speak with metaphors, which are lies, which are examples of what we actually mean, but not what we mean. We, we oversimplify things or we elongate things to the point where they're not succinct and clearly understood and as a result when you have that gut reaction of oh this is just wrong pause and actually state from my understanding you've just said this can you explain that a little bit more to me that person will know that what they've said conflicts with you but they're pleased that you're actually allowing them to expand upon it so they can attempt to prove it to you do that so that you know, okay, if at one point you need to change their direction, you are doing it fully understanding what their direction actually is. You're, you're right. And I think that gut feeling of this person is wrong can sometimes be a completely justified feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way you go about that is is actually pertinent to, to having a productive conversation because you can just say you're wrong, which is going to get the person, the other person defensive. But what you could do is identify why you believe they're wrong. Um, and the reason why you believe they're wrong is because there is an element of uncertainty in what you've heard in terms of maybe you don't believe they've considered certain things in in detail, or you don't believe that there's a logical approach to what they're trying to deliver. And the easiest thing to do there is just ask questions. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, From what I've understood, you think X, but my concern is I don't know how you're going to be able to do Y without a significant challenge please could you like how, how do you feel like you're going to overcome this issue um and if they have a very detailed legitimate response then that will go quite a long way in reassuring you and showing you that their idea isn't necessarily wrong or mm. if they're not a psychopath once you actually identify the challenge and the issue in front of in front of them They'll concede and say, you know what, I hadn't thought about that. And what you've done is you've 
dealt with a situation which could have actually turned into a very heated argument in a very succinct, effective way. They'll appreciate it. All that we're speaking about is is buy-in. There's a phrase which I use often, earning buy-in, developing buy-in to you as an individual, and then maybe later on to your ideas. And I say you as an individual first, because people often buy into people more than their idea. And if they interpret you as someone who shoots from the hip, has loads of arguments, tells people that they're wrong, you could be providing the the, the vaccine, the, the cure for COVID, but because it's <laughs> coming from you, people have shut down. They do not want to listen. And that's what we have to think about the importance of gathering more information and being the professional within the room. I completely agree. And I mean, sometimes the issue isn't the other person's idea is terrible. Sometimes the issue is that the idea that you've given is terrible. Mm. And being willing and happy to accept the fact that you've had the terrible idea and being able to move on from that point very quickly is also a really important tool and technique. We can't always assume that we're the ones with the right answer in the room. So being able to maybe take a step away from, from our own thinking in order to ensure that we progress the conversation, I think that's super important as well. Yes. Which ties in Carnegie's points one and two rather well. Um, mm. Avoiding the argument, but also showing respect to the other person by not stating that they are wrong. Just having that emotional intelligence to understand what that does to people when you do it because they will have an element of, they could have a missing piece to your initiative, what you're trying to provide. But the moment in which you do that, you you cut that short. And and that ties in with with just the idea of the, the next point, which is always engaging with someone in good faith. Now, this is something which I think is, has been lost over the last, over the last five, five or six years where people are becoming more and more divided as a society. And if somebody tells you that they um, support a particular political ideology or they support a particular football team, for example, it doesn't really matter what else they have to say because they are already a ambassador of evil. So everything that this person said is automatically wrong by default. Now, having that point of view really does cause challenge in discussion. Um, And the opposite in the form of always having discussions in good faith is the way that you make significant progress. And good faith is simply believing that the person that you're speaking to is speaking to you from a righteous and honest perspective. Mm-hmm. That they're not approaching you with a mal- with malicious intent. They're not approaching you with the intent to deceive or be right. Um, that their ego hasn't taken over the conversation. That this person, like you, hopefully, is approaching the discussion from an honest and yeah. civil standpoint. Um, and what that does is immediately lower your defenses. Because even if conversations get heated, you are holding on to the idea that this person respects me and is only trying to get to a positive outcome. Mm. It, it, it can be so powerful because if, if you are admitting quickly when you are wrong and not including a but after it, it will raise your credibility in the eyes of other people, which goes against what people inherently think. They, they think they have to be right about everything to develop credit. But if you can be seen as actually saying, oh, wow, I completely missed that. Okay, I'm wrong. And allow for that pause. Because people expect you to fill that pause with a but to justify why actually you're kind of still right in certain quarters. No, you're just wrong. Own it. They will suddenly feel better about themselves because they were right. Imagine that they're speaking to someone who positionally has a superior title but they'll also leave thinking wow that 
that person, that individual, actually isn't full of themselves and is willing to concede. So we can actually work together. I can actually bring my honest viewpoints to that individual because they're not going to shoot it down because it didn't come from them. Mm. And there's a flip side to that as well, which is if somebody openly admits that they are wrong, your response or your next steps will define or determine how they interact with you in future. So the the phrase kicking a man when they're down comes to mind, which is Mm. if somebody admits that they are wrong and you use this as an opportunity to kind of pile on with other points and other ideas, and you were probably wrong about this and you were probably wrong about that too, weren't you? Um, Mm. Or, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you said that you're wrong because when you told me about your idea the other day, I was really thinking like this person, like if you, if you approach it from that perspective of almost, this is now my opportunity to really twist the knife or get the upper hand, be aware of how that person interacts with you in future. Mm-hmm. Are they as likely to say that they are wrong when conceding that they were wrong was an opportunity for you to really denigrate or d- diminish their 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 value um i think that's really important i think that happens both in a professional standpoint and in relationships yes. i think it's really important that people identify that that if someone's as soon as someone says that they're wrong it's an opportunity for us to accept it and move on mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think what we're talking about here is let's try our best to make sure that these conversations remain civil. Now, one of um, one of the authors that I, I, I read around this, uh, Jordan Peterson, he, he had a very interesting perspective. It's like many conversations that we have are similar to the idea of speaking to somebody knowing that you both have a gun under it <laughs> under the table um and the, the imagery there is just the idea of being in a civil discussion at a desk and both of you are holding a magnum 38 under the table pointing at each other mm-hmm. and at any moment somebody could pull the trigger um and i somewhat disagree with that perspective because that that perspective kind of steps away from good faith. It means that you're tiptoeing around the conversation, not because you want the conversation to be civil because you want to gain insight from the other person, but you're tiptoeing around the conversation because you don't want it to turn into an absolute bloody chaos. Yes. Um, so I, somewhat, I understand where he's coming from, but I somewhat disagree. I love the imagery. And I think it's useful imagery for us to remember when we're going into conversations that both, if, if somebody knows you well, then they do have that silver bullet. They do have that thing that they could pull the trigger at any moment and everything turns into chaos. Yep. And both of us are on a journey trying to avoid either of us pulling that trigger. Uh, but I think it's a quite quite a pessimistic view. So I, I'm not sure. What do you think? It's, it's, I, I love the metaphor because I've seen it before. And I think many people listening right now have, have seen that in their families. <laughs> across, <laughs> across, Christmas, yeah. <laughs> Christmas, across the living room, across the dining room table. You can see people metaphorically loading up. Just like, you know what, actually? Shells. <laughs> I, I, I need to swap weapon because yeah. I can't believe what that person just said. It happens. And I think the, the solution is when you know you're walking into that kind of environment where the other person's going to be loading up, the greatest thing for you to do is to down tools. It's mm. uh, biblically, it's, it's almost turned the other cheek. Because once that person realizes that actually you're not lying metaphorically about downing tools, but you don't actually have a weapon, they have a choice to make. Do they fire when you are openly stating, I want peace talks. I want to understand your perspective more and then share mine. Do they do that? Because if they do that, it will be seen. And and what, what do they benefit from it? Because they haven't actually changed your opinion. All they've done is reaffirm the view that they 
kick people when they're down. Yeah. So I think that there's, I understand the metaphor and the difficulty is that many of us do not want to down tools because we feel that we have to, if, if it's, if it's a knife battle, you have to bring a knife, if it's a gun battle, you have to bring a gun, excuse the metaphors, that you have to provide artillery and ammunition equivalent or surpassing what the other person is. And the superpower about communication suggests actually the, the, the greatest tool is your emotional intelligence, is your ability to understand why that person might be loading up right now and how to mm. help them to step back off that cliff. And do you know what? As you spoke, the, that imagery kind of came to life for me. And what is the best way of disarming somebody who's got a gun pointing to you? One of the easiest ways that I that I can think of is pointing your own gun to your own head. Mm. Um, like the, the other person would be thinking, this this guy's crazy. Um, but yeah, literally the idea of pointing your own gun to your own head is a very disarming image. Yes. And what does that look like during a conversation? Well, if somebody has some silver bullets for you, if somebody has some some bullets that they want to fire or some shells that they want to give you, then disarming them is actually using those same shells on yourself mm. and saying, almost denigrating yourself, but not not in, in once again, in a, in a manipulative way, but appreciating that, okay, I'm not perfect. Mm. And this is me actually being vulnerable by identifying and demonstrating that I understand my own limitations. Yes. It's kind of like the Eminem in 8 Mile, situation mm -hmm. where you know in order to for him to, to disarm his enemy right at the, the the end he spent a lot of time just insulting himself um and i think that's a really powerful tool not to to be used in a manipulative way but to also almost identify that okay well i'm not perfect and these are my flaws these are my faults yeah. and it, it almost removes the need for somebody to be pointing a gun at you. There, there is something, and I, and I need a, a clinical psychologist to buttress this point because I'll butcher it. But inherently, yes, there are aspects of human beings which are just downright evil, but there are also mm. aspects of us which are inherently compassionate and we we object, we detest someone kicking someone else when they're down. Mm. It's why we support the underdog. It's why so many films are about underdogs. We like yeah. the underdog. Um, woe to you if you support a team and you're in the final against an underdog because everyone is supporting them. <laughs> no one's yep. supporting you. We do Absolutely. because we, we, we empathize with that individual because we've all been the underdog. So I think that's a really important point for people to hold on to, which is like, I think the imagery is a useful image for people to hold on to that every conversation you step into potentially has the kind of, it has the potential to go wrong. Um, and your responsibility is to navigate that, that discussion in a way that it can end as positively as possible. And if you do have some bullets for the other person, remember that the other person has some bullets for you. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're navigating. And I think to, to kind of navigate onto the next point, I think it's important to, to look at power dynamics within a conversation or discussion. Um, when we are having a difficult conversation with somebody, the tendency can be to try and retain power as much as possible mm. and trying to, to be in the driving seat of the conversation as much, much as possible because then we've got the steering wheel. We can navigate it into areas that we feel more comfortable. We don't want to step into uncharted territory where the other person might have the upper hand. But... Dale Carnegie encourages us to do the absolute opposite. He encourages us to relinquish power, relinquish control of the conversation and give it to the other person. Mm. 
let the other person take take the lead and give them the opportunity to steer the conversation in a way that they feel comfortable. What's your view on that? Why do you think that's so important? It, it's crucial because it goes against what we naturally do. It's often what we naturally mm-hmm. do is just wrong. Um, naturally, when we want to lead, we want to, we, we feel as if we have to speak the most. Yeah. We feel as if we, if we move into a new space, I'm doing this right now, I move into a new space, it would be a, an inaccurate judgment of mine to believe that I must be speaking more than anyone else. When in reality, I need to listen as much as possible because I'm forming right now. And I must have that inner belief that actually when I do speak, it will show value because it will synthesize everything which has been said and offer the pathway forward. Allow others to speak. Allow others to have that time to showcase their own ideas, not just for them, but for you. If they do a great deal of the talking, they will then hopefully talk themselves into the solution or the problem. Think about the power of the question. If you frame your questions well enough, they will highlight what you've already observed as the quote-unquote judge. And thus you can lead them to that point of actually saying yes to what you want or the solution moving everyone forward. And this is what coaching is fundamentally. Coaching is just really positive listening. Like when you're coaching somebody, what you're doing is you're giving them the opportunity to find their own solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, I think people don't necessarily fully appreciate the value of a good coach because a good coach will ask you the right question. And sometimes when you sit in on a coaching session, either knowingly or unknowingly, you can leave that conversation feeling like, well, I didn't really get much out of it. Even if you got to the end result or you've got to a resolution where you feel comfortable, mainly because all you did was engage and speak mm-hmm. and the other person just asked you you know, questions. But a good coach is able to make you feel like you did all of the heavy lifting or you did all the hard work. Yes. And that's the same as a good leader. A good leader is able to make the individual feel like they weren't, the leader wasn't actually necessary here. Um, and it, it's, it's, it, it's really um, difficult in some instances because yes, the best leaders appear almost unnecessary. The only time when you actually understand the value, the true value of a good leader is when they leave. Mm. I think about Alex Ferguson at Manchester mm. United. Sorry, ladies, football football metaphor. Maybe we need a buzzer every time we deliver a football metaphor. <laughs> but some people would argue that why is Alex Ferguson absolutely necessary? He's got a team full of superstars. You could put anybody in that role and the team's going to do well. And that's exactly the experiment that was was tested. <laughs> and Manchester United are only recovering how many years later? It's, it's, we're, we're coming close to a decade now. Yeah. And that's that's the art of a fantastic leader. Somebody who can almost take a step back from the discussion and allow the individuals to reach their true potential. And the fine tuning, the small, subtle things that they're doing behind the scenes to make things worse are pretty much unnoticed. And the only time they're noticed is when that leader stops doing it or leaves. Yes. The, the Ferguson model is, is, is an incredible one because to, to, to expand upon it very briefly, he didn't work... I don't want to use the phrase coach because it will confuse the use of the phrase coach earlier. But he didn't Mm. work with players one-to-one. He had others doing that. He managed and oversaw everything. And it it would come down after watching to suggest certain tweaks, but then will go back up to his office where he positioned himself to have a bird's eye view of what's occurring, which is very interesting. almost like metaphor to, to delve into it and explore. One of the reasons why he may have done that is that oftentimes people will only accept it if they feel it's come from them. Yep. So he left them with the information. 
left them to work on it, went back to his position to observe how well they're working on it, and then would repeat that process. And this was a process which led to the countless years of success. But it's, it's one which just highlights that as human beings, once again, just trying to psychoanalyze our complex mindsets, we can sometimes reject what hasn't come from us, which to our own detriment. And thus, the, the, the great coach will enable the individual to feel as if they are generating the solutions themselves so that they can own it. Absolutely. And I think the art of a good communicator, a good leader is not to, to, to establish the, to, to, to reinforce the point that, you know, this was my idea. I'm terrible at that. I really am. Like if, for example, I'm spending time and effort saying that the sky is blue and then one of my staff members a year later goes, you know, what? I think the sky is blue. I have to put, I have to, bang my hand on the table and say listen i've been telling you the sky is blue for a year now and now you want to tell me that you think that i'm that guy and i know it's a negative but i just can't help it sometimes because of the time and effort spent trying to convince somebody that the sky Mm. is blue and it's almost like okay we're we're gonna brush over the 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 work that i've been doing over the last year i need to get better on it god is working on all of us And, and that's a very honest reflection um my, my solution around that is I communicate explicitly my strategy with the board, with those at the upper echelon, Mount Olympus, which might only consist of three people. But the actual implementation with it, with the staff members, is helping them to, to come to that realisation of what's going to occur. So when it does finally occur, they get all the plaudits and all the celebration. And everyone thinks that they have done a great job, which they have, brilliant. Promote them, empower them, upskill them to lead. But very few will know where it actually came from. I target those on the upper echelon because I know that the greatest leaders develop other leaders. And I need someone to see what my intent is long term. So when they see that being played out by someone else, they will remember, ah, yes, he actually did say that he was working on this. And this is going back to almost the Tuckman model. I'm in the forming stage. I'm, I'm currently planting seeds. I'm, I'm plowing the ground. Whilst at the same time, painting that picture to those on Mount Olympus, to the board of what this mm. is going to look like long term. And how those who are helping me plow the ground are going to be the ones who are going to deliver it. That helps me overcome that anxiety of, but wait, are they going to take credit for a year's worth of work? when actually I've had to drag them through this. Well, to, yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, this is the thing. Like, I, I, I do have my advocates. So stakeholder management for me is whenever I'm trying to convince people that the sky is blue, I need to bring as many people around as possible so that it's not just one voice. So in many instances, I don't necessarily have to explicitly say that. I've been telling you guys this for a very long time because my advocates would be the first ones to be like, isn't this what Abby's been saying for yes. X amount of time? Um, we've got the receipts. And that's a really validating feeling. Um, and, and, you know, me and those people can have a discussion. So it very rarely gets to, the, the, it rarely gets to my detractors or the people that were against me in the early days mm. that I'm the one saying. But it, in, in my own echo chamber, with my own team, yes, I'm definitely still of the mindset of, Guys, this is what I've been saying for a very long time and only now they want to do it and we've lost millions of pounds as a result. Um, yeah, it, as I said, God's working on all of us. I'll do better. Um, in terms of another area where I think many people need support and many people need development, it's around a concept which has only really picked up steam, I'd say over the last decade or so. We're all very familiar with what IQ is, uh, our intelligence quotient, and how, how smart we are, how, how good we are at problem solving and following a logical trail. I think one thing that is becoming more and more important, especially within the workplace, is our EQ, or our emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And... 
in the context of getting people to consider your way of thinking, honestly, what it, what it comes down to is trying your best to see the other person's point of view. Now, in, in the last episode, I talked about the importance of not listening to just what somebody says, but listening to what they mean because we are terrible communicators and sometimes the language that we use doesn't fully convey what we're trying to get across. Um, and, and this is just uh, another example of that. By, by using your emotional intelligence, you take into consideration, yes, what people say, but also their body language and also the context within which they're saying things because what we're trying to do is understand where this person is coming from. And we can't do this in a vacuum. We can't understand somebody's perspective just by looking at what they've said in the moment. We have to look at who they are, what their experiences have been, what their work life is looking like, and what their overall objective is. Because there have been many occasions, for instance, I'll give an example where I wanted to start a new business line at work because one of our business lines was was failing it was a product that had been around for 30 years and it was every year it was making less money and i wanted to take some of the money from this business line and focus it on new, on a new digital service now I put together a presentation which had a graph of the old business lines, um, projected growth or lack of growth. It basically looked like it was um, uh, the trajectory of a basketball where it went up and then it was, a, it was gonna hit the ground, it was gonna hit the dirt. I presented it and I provided a justification as to why money should be taken away from investment in this old product line and invested in a new business line that was gonna make more money. And in the room was an individual who said that it was a terrible idea. His argument was that this business line was going through a blip and that it would eventually pick up again because it always picked up again. And I, I just hadn't been in the business long enough to understand that that's the trajectory of the business line. This is the loving um, of the bullets. That line right there, of, you haven't been here long enough to understand, little boy. He just caught the, the loading of the bullets. He he caught he caught the weapon, and to be honest, I won't I won't talk too much about it. But he pulled the trigger. He definitely pulled the trigger <laughs> during this discussion. But the thing that I hadn't necessarily taken into consideration when presenting this to him and to many other people in the room is that this was a business line that he had been working on for thirty years. Mm. This was this he was he went he came up through the business as a senior sales individual who was selling this product. Um, he fed his family on this. He got promotions on this. Um, he developed his own credibility and expertise on this product that I was now saying was obsolete. So what I was effectively doing was saying that you're obsolete, sir. So was was his point that I did, you know, what was the point that... Um, this this uh, business was going to pick up again. Was it true? Well, now, five years on, I can definitely say it wasn't true because that business is pretty much at the dirt and going through a restructure right now. Um, there is no opportunity for it to, to, to bounce back. But, you know, the framing of it was based on this individual's experience. And as a result, he wasn't willing to take a step away from his perspective and 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 maybe appreciate my perspective because he was personally attacked. Now, if I'd taken a more emotionally intelligent perspective, I would have identified the people who did have an emotional connection to this business line mm -hmm. before I made the presentation and had a discussion with him about where he saw the future of the business. In actual fact, I did this retroactively. So after I delivered the presentation, I then went and had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him about the future of the business. And during that discussion, I realized that, yeah, it was just an emotional connection that he had to the business. But by doing that early on and by identifying those people who care 
I could have avoided that that debacle. So so those are the types of things where emotional intelligence can 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 help you navigate those difficult situations. Generally, people, the, the last three to four minutes are well worth listening to again in terms of just understanding the, the magnitude of emotional intelligence. Because it's not about being right. You can be factually right, but wrong at the same time. And I think that that anecdote is such a powerful one, showcasing the the mistake which we've all made in the past at some point by not gathering enough intel intelligence before forming how we're going to present something because i imagine abby would still have presented his understanding but it would have been slightly different because he would have known the attachments that people have had to it now some people might not be able to empathize with this on a on a, on a corporate or business perspective but you would do on a relational perspective um, how many times have you heard someone critique someone's cooking not realizing that yes that meal is not to the standard of that person produced beforehand but if you knew the countless things which occurred during that day the fact that, <laughs> that meal is actually on the table is a miracle absolutely and it's posing more questions before assertions there's a really good book um i think it's called captivate by a lady called Vanessa Van Edwards. And the book in itself is one of those books. I would put it up there. I'd say it was one of the like modern day Dale Carnegie, Stephen Covey style books where it's one of those books where I, I, I think you should read it maybe once a year because there are so many valuable gems in it and it talks in detail about emotional intelligence and understanding the different drivers that, that, that motivate people. And I think having those in your back pocket, understanding that everybody that I work with has got a different reason to come into work and mm -hmm. has a different reason for being here right now, I think it's really important. The knowledge that 20% of the people that I work with are actively seeking a new job as we speak, <laughs> putting through their CVs, going to interviews behind my back, 20% of your team are doing that right now um, maybe will adjust the way that you're engaging with them, adjust the way that you're, you're thinking about them um, and, and seeing them as human beings rather than resources, which I think is yes. absolutely key. Emotional intelligence will humble us. It will also allow us to not always seek the win and that on some instances you need to allow other people to actually have this moment, have the shine, or to realize that that battle is a worthy one, but not one for now. It's not Absolutely. actually worth pursuing that right now. Let's talk about how I could have addressed that situation better. Mm. So here is me standing in front of a room full of execs, relatively junior in my career at the time, and having done a lot of research backed up by input from a lot of experts, which identified that, and this is, this is um, five years ago, um, that machine learning technology was going to automate a lot of the activity that we do now, provide useful insights and save us a lot of manpower in understanding customer behavior, in understanding um, optimum ways of, of, of working, um, and old-fashioned um, software systems, mechanical systems, were going to be less relevant in a very, very rapidly changing environment. Just a bit of background. Now, for some people, that sounds like a lot of gray, but I had to stand up and present this to a room full of executives. And in order for me to get that point across, what I would have had to do well is tell a compelling story. Yes. And that's the last point I think for today, yes. tell a compelling story. And 
What does that mean, tell a compelling story? Well, the, the thing that I'd like to think about ultimately is when you're telling a story, the story has a protagonist. Who is the protagonist? Who is the hero of the story? Afalabi. They are. This is possibly my favorite. This encapsulates the last three points within this section of Dale Carnegie's book. And, and, and what it does is that it encourages us to remember that everyone wants to be taken on a journey, but we are visual in our understanding of memories and thus pictures and journeys need to be painted for us so we can see where we were, where we are and where we're going to go to. And what it could have been like is um, a young individual standing before them presenting, stating, wouldn't it have been incredible um, if someone had actually got through to the board members at Blockbusters and highlighted what was going to occur? Wouldn't it have been amazing if one of them was actually able to go back and actually change one of the decisions not to digitalize their approach? Um, I'd like you to imagine now that you are me standing before you, new into this organization, fresh ideas, still rather green in many people's perspectives. And you've stumbled across data which highlights that for the last three decades, this initiative has been on the decline. How do you present that knowing that those who are receiving it built it from nothing, that they turned it into something that the company valued and built their reputation upon? How do you convey that message, which the numbers are indicating, but our emotional attachments do not wish to let go of? Proceeding from that point to actually sharing what the reality is to what it could be, allows them to actually step back into your shoes. Because oftentimes we're thinking about their perspective, which is really important. There is a possibility to actually enable them to share your perspective and to make the decision which you're already making for them. Um, conveying a powerful story enables you to set the scene for what things could be whilst enabling the person to also drive that story for you. Sometimes when you talk, I could just listen to it because I think it's, it's very interesting how somebody who isn't necessarily a professional in the tech space is very capable of communicating messages almost interchangeably with some of the senior professionals that I work with. Um, your messaging is spot on. And the, the, the approach that I took when, when I revisited um, this same topic one year later, it was very different. Um, it was actually part of my actions because my, my boss at the time basically said to me, your presentation didn't bang and you're going to get another chance next year. So let's work together on making it work. Um, and the, the, the approach that I took was just to explain to these people that we're sitting on gold that we're not exploiting. Mm. Everybody in this room has got data, which is extremely valuable. And if we, you, if we take the insights from this data, can make everybody in this room extremely rich. What are we gonna do about it? Drop the mic. And <laughs> it, it's, 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 and I, I want to talk about that last point, which is what are we going to do about it? I think we often step into rooms when being asked to present with the expectation that we must provide the answer. Mm. Um, and that's not the case. In many instances, a really good presentation can be delivered with the presenter saying very little, or maybe providing providing the runway, providing the introduction, and letting everybody else run. The best presenters I know are always very capable 
facilitators of discussion as opposed to public speakers. And just by giving people an opportunity to take center stage, and as we've discussed previously, believing that these ideas were conjured by them as opposed to by a third party is a really valuable and effective way of making sure that you get the buy-in that you need. It's, it's remembering that we're working with human beings and that there, there's a, a, a reoccurring theme throughout everything we've said, which is that human beings are highly complex, there's just machines, organisms, creatures, and that if you want to be an effective communicator, you have to invest time trying to understand yourself as a human being, how you communicate, how you interpret, but how others do so also. And, and once you do that, you realize that people want autonomy. People want um, to be celebrated. People want to see a hope and a future. And if you have data which is showcasing something is actually depleting is it's decaying is it's 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 going to a point of no return presenting that to someone will not leave them feeling good so they're going to ine <laughs> inevitably start loading up because it's self-defense yep. <laughs> what, what we need to do is to equip them with the tools to move forward so um, i often say move forward rather than changes because going into a new environment no one wants change and if you actually get to that point of having a conversation about change, I ask them, well, do you want to improve? Well, we, if we're going to improve, we, we, we then need to move forward. But, then, but how can we do that after setting the scene? Set the scene. Show that there's credibility and knowledge. Make it factual. Make it succinct and clear. How do we move forward from this? Have ideas. I like that. But enable them to create it themselves. I like that a lot. I mean, and this, this, I think that once again demonstrates the value of language and why it's important to have quite a, a broad vocabulary when speaking to people because a very simple switch from how do we change to how do we move forward can create a completely different sense within your stakeholders. Um, so yeah, being conscious of the language that we use is is a key element of communication and yes uh I, I really hope that as people have listened to this they've they've maybe not taken away a one-to-one -one set of actions for them to do in their own life but they've kind of distilled it down into ideas that they can implement what we've discussed and some of the the examples that i've shared are not going to be relevant to you in your day-to-day -day life, but some of the principles are. And I think that's what, that's what is key to both the idea of good communication and being a wise individual. Distilling the information that you're hearing and using it to understand how it impacts your environment and your experiences. Um, this has been communication. And as part of our superpower series, we dedicated three episodes to the idea of communication all around Dale Carnegie's famous book. Now, we could potentially spend an entire year or an entire podcast on this particular subject, but we're going to draw a line in it. I think next steps would be to have somebody else in who's maybe listened to what we've shared and just get a third party's perspective because mm. I believe that, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, we are quite well aligned on our approach. And it would be great to see if we could get some conflict, some, dis the, you know, dis dissenting voices to, to, to challenge us on some of these thoughts. Um, the next episode, which we're going to be looking at or the next topic we'll be looking at in this series is leadership which undoubtedly is a superpower in this day and age so i really hope that people are looking forward to that last word to you afalabi once again people i am being extremely blessed um by this 
it is very practical to me. This is not theory. This is what I'm working on to develop even further. For I truly believe that we all require it as, 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 as friends, as, as parents, as colleagues, as leaders, as entrepreneurs. We all require the ability to effectively communicate. So as you go throughout this week, think about how you can add value through the way that you communicate and stop and think, when are you actually not listening, but someone is speaking to you? Thank you again for joining us, people. This is Expensive Lessons, the podcast where company directors share the fruits of their labors and many of the failures which have helped them to come to this point. This has been the communication series. Have an amazing day. Take care, everyone. Take care.